0: It's hard for us to forsake God or attempt uh, righteous living on our own if we're wholly dependent on God uh, for that, uh, if we are depending on the all-powerful creator. We saw that necessary mindset in James' instruction when he said that we need to ask for wisdom, and we also looked at the double-minded man as well, which all of us are tempted with. we saw that this morning uh, when pastor mentioned uh, not being able to serve God and man. It's the same exact idea. The action then that follows that mindset of weakness is to accept responsibility when we do have shortcomings. It's tempting to blame our wrongdoing on anything but ourselves. We saw that it's been common to do that since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. But James tells us that lust leads to sin that results in death. We also read a quote that told us that we wrong God if we, quote, lay the blame of our sins upon our constitution, our makeup. Or if we pretend we are under a fatal necessity of sin, if we're just, well, we're sinners, we're doomed to sin, that's not the right mentality. Right. Our own flesh draws us, entices us to sin, and we then, as a result, ultimately, will uh, we deal with death uh, physically and spiritually. The result that comes, though, from recognizing our weakness and accepting responsibility when we do give into temptations and, and dealing with that is one of blessing and honor. We have a closer relationship with God that ultimately brings joy that we see awarded to us with the crown of life, which we can then cast at the feet of our Savior. And the reason that joy is so sweet to cast the crown at our Savior's feet is because our relationship with him has been so enhanced now.
1: We began discussing at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2
0: last week, but we'll rehash some of that again this evening to help us understand the passage for tonight. As I dug into the particular passage of scripture that we'll be going over, uh, over the course of the recent weeks and months, I realized that this passage had potential to be a particularly difficult passage to preach. I spent some extra time reading some other men's notes and listening to sermons to hear uh, their thoughts on it so that I could try to get a grasp of it. To quote one of my favorite commentators, this for some people is the most controversial passage of scripture in the entirety of our Bibles today. Uh, I told a few people that this week, and they laughed at me, as they should have. Uh, Sometimes I enjoy biting off more than I can chew, and I really nailed it today. But I think think we'll see. Uh, As I studied this passage throughout this week, uh, I walked away realizing truly the beauty of God's plan and the invincibility of his word. Nothing can can destroy his word. To begin tonight, we'll read verses 14 through 17, and then verse 26 of chapter 2. We'll pray and then we'll get into our study this evening. What we'll be doing tonight is just contrasting dead faith and living faith. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if the path not works, is dead being alone. Jumping down to verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we meet together around your word again this evening, I pray that this passage would be one that encourages us truly. Uh, I know there are difficult pieces to this. I pray that you would help me to be able to Communicate them clearly so that we can all go away understanding what your word has for us. And uh, I pray that we would be, as we even looked at last week, that we would be a more mature Christian because we have learned these things. And I pray again that it would be an encouragement. I pray you would help me not to get in the way. I pray that distractions would be cleared from our minds and our hearts. We would be able to just take a little bit and focus on what your word has to say. We pray this in your name. All around us today are people who say they're Christians. Though our culture certainly is spiraling downward in certain areas, it's still common, normal, and accepted to claim the title of Christian. People fill their bios on social media with cross emojis, references of a certain Bible verse, a quote from a commentator, or claims that they are the daughter of the king. Sometimes they'll put a fish on their car. Or they'll have a sticker that says, he is greater than my highs and lows. Or they'll wear a WWJD-HWLF bracelet. Now, I'm not saying those things are evil or sinful at all. But what I want us to look at tonight is that those things truly are unnecessary. In a recent speech, our president said these things. You are your brother's keeper. It really matters what other people are going through, and we ought to be looking out for one another. He spoke highly of the value of honesty. Obviously, that alone.
1: <laughs>
0: and he talked about having equal respect for each other. Now, if we think about that, each one of those things comes from Scripture. We see, uh, excuse me, Cain talk about being his brother's keeper in Genesis 4, verse 9. When he talked about noting what other people are going through and looking out for them, We see that in Philippians 2, verse 4. We ought to look every man on the things of others. Honesty, well, we see, obviously, in the Ten Commandments that we're not supposed to bear false witness. And then equal respect, having equal respect for one another. We just looked at that last week uh, when we talked about not having favoritism. Although you and I can't know for sure Joe Biden's spiritual condition, I think many of us would reach the same conclusion that he's not likely a true Christian. Why do we say that, though? In the speech I referenced, he claimed faith that guides him and then mentioned principles straight from our Bibles. Who are we to question his faith? In those seven verses that we just read, we see three pictures of dead faith. James tells us why we can question our president's faith and what discerning we should be asking of our own selves and others. One commentator sums up this section very succinctly. What you do determines who you are. We all understand this concept very well. I was thinking of just a a trial a way to try to illustrate this to you. Uh, You all have known me for about a year and a half now, um, pastor, maybe a little bit longer, but if I came to you and I told you that I were a great plumber and I could fix any plumbing problem you might have, and then you called me to fix a plumbing issue at your house, and I brought a circular saw, a calculator, and a bulldozer, (laughs) you're probably going to doubt my legitimacy. You might also have questions about where I got the bulldozer. Or maybe if we make it a little bit more intense, if I told you that I'm actually one of the top neurosurgeons in the country and you needed a highly specialized procedure done, I walked into the OR with a few teens and a spike ball set, you should seriously doubt my legitimacy. (laughs) It's why there are product reviews, company reviews, surveys at restaurants, and everything else. What you do determines who you are. The action of confronting dead faith is not unique only to James. John the Baptist confronted the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6 tell us of the work that John was accomplishing. And then it says in verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to be stones to raise up children unto Abraham. The fatal flaw here was that the people thought that their heritage was what saved them. Jesus himself confronted scribes and Pharisees just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 23. He gave them a scathing review of their lives and says in verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not leave the other undone. The fatal flaw here was that the scribes and Pharisees cared more about what people thought of them, (laughs) rather than making their hearts right with God. James gives us three hypotheticals in that passage we just read that we're going to look at, that help us identify a dead faith. Let's go ahead and look at our first description of a dead faith, which is false profession. We read just a minute ago verse 14, but I want us to look at it one more time. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? At first glance, this verse may not seem very challenging to our minds, but it's very important to understand what the point is. When James is going through this passage of scripture, he's talking about a certain type of faith, the faith that doesn't have works. If you look up the Greek translation of James 2.14, uh, it helps us make perfect sense of this. Let's think first, though, on Acts 16.31. Paul says in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So James here writes, if a man says he has faith and has no works, can faith save him? And the answer James is looking for is no, that faith can't save him. But we just saw that passage in Acts 16, where Paul told the jailer, all you need to do is believe. This small article in the Greek helps us understand this. Uh, This little Greek word is two letters of our English alphabet, it's very short, uh, but it has a weighty meaning. Uh, It occurs in our Bibles today over 20,000 times. Sometimes it's put into our English translation and sometimes not, but I think noting it here is going to help us understand this passage more clearly. The little word that we could say is in there, in verse 14, is if we put the word that in front of faith in verse 14. So listen to it with that article included. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can that faith save him? And that's the point uh, truly that is trying to be made. When we ask it that way, it makes total sense. We realize the clear answer to that is, no, that type of faith cannot save them. It's because we are what we do, not what we say. James continues with the second description of dead faith in verses 15 through 17, which is fraudulent pity. He writes, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, What does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We understand the concept of having a brother or sister. It's someone who is very close to us. Uh, Sarah and I don't have any family right around this area, but if one of our family members just showed up one day, we welcome them with open arms. They're family. We have a unique bond with them that we don't have with other people. And then if we continue on, if if that brother or sister be naked, if we look at that verse naked, it could mean naked like we understand it today. But because of the context, we understand it more to be without necessary clothing. The actual word that's used is the word that we get our word today gymnasium from. If you want to think of this as clothes for the gym, if that's a thing you do, we would probably agree that most gym clothes are supposed to be as least cumbersome and restricting as possible. If you're familiar with Greek history, then you also recall that when men trained for athletic events, there was extreme immodesty. It led to great sin. This would have been a clear example to the Jews scattered abroad, that there was a clear need of basic garments necessary to public life. Then we look at that little phrase, destitute of daily food. That's the context that helps us understand that word naked. Destitute simply means without the basic necessities of life. The situation then that presents itself is that one of our family members who is in extreme, or excuse me, One of our family members is in extreme need. (coughs) Regardless of what they've done to you leading up to this point, they're coming to you with nothing. They'll not be able to survive very long in life due to their need or due to being destitute. James says then that the man who has dead faith looks at the brother or sister and he sends him his way with a blessing. It would be one thing to send him with a blessing after having at least met today's needs for that one. But he doesn't meet any of his needs. James says, notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful. This is so similar to the scribes and Pharisees that we just saw in Matthew chapter 23. They noticed people's needs, but it was only for the goal that other people would notice them noticing needs. It'd be like us telling someone today, we'll pray for you. Just so that that person or others standing around would notice our compassion and piety. Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees that they were full of hypocrisy and iniquity and asked them how they would escape the damnation of hell. I don't want to be in that group, and I hope you right. won't either. Good. Matthew 6 tells us not to give our alms before men and not to let our left hand know what our right hand doeth. It. it may be far from any Christian to notice needs just for man's recognition. Our goal instead should be to meet those needs. Yeah. That's what a true Christian does. Right. James tells us in verse 17 that that type of faith, the faith without works is dead. I also was trying to think of an illustration about this, and I realized I truly don't need one, uh, and I'm thankful for that. Instead of fraudulent pity, our church as a whole does such a wonderful job of what I would say having fruitful pity on one another. It's one of the first things that Sarah and I noticed when we came here, and many others have told me similar things when they visited. Last week, after I mentioned my air conditioning wasn't working right super well in my car right now, Immediately after the service, I had several guys come up to me and say, hey, let me fix that. And I said, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe a more somber example, when our dear brothers Earl and David passed away a few months ago. Our church leapt into action like I've never seen. It It was wonderful to see the compassion, true compassion, coming from this body of believers. When Pastor mentioned the need that we had for the courtyard to be finished, our church has continued to give faithfully. And in abundance, he mentioned that this morning, and it's very clear. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is explaining to people how he will identify those who are truly saved. Listen to what he said. Actually, you know what? Why don't we turn over to Matthew chapter 25? Let's do that, because this is a little bit longer passage. It'll be on the screen, I'm sure, but sometimes it's good just to look down and see what it says in order. chapter 25 i'm going to read verses 34 through 40 then shall the king say unto them on his right hand come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was in hunger and you gave me meat i was thirsty and you gave me drink i was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came unto me Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That is true fruitful pity. That is only characteristic of a righteous life of a truly regenerated life continue down a few verses in verses 41 through 43 and you see the opposite then shall he also say to them on the left hand depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels for I was hunger and you gave me no meat I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger and you took me not in naked and you clothed me not sick and in prison, and he visited him not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, a thirst or a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer on them, saying, Verily I say unto you, and as much as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Jesus clearly recognizes uh, a truly regenerated life uh, by what they are doing, the way that they take care of a brother or sister, and we understand that to mean a brother or sister in Christ, and I think we would understand that to mean all people at the ends of the earth, truly, if if that were what we were called to. Our true care for one another is a proof of a legitimate conversion, just like you would doubt my legitimacy earlier if I had brought certain things to do with a job that would not have worked well. This is a clear proof of a legitimate conversion, is one who cares for one another. The last description of a dead faith you see on the screen is a flippant persuasion. Verses 18 through 20 of James chapter 2 says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James here uses the illustration of a man who truly is using post-modernist logic, yeah. uh, He's yeah. saying you have this, I have that let's separate ways and agree to disagree I personally this is not in my notes I personally think that we have done such a great disjustice to that phrase let's agree to disagree yeah. uh, because it doesn't mean peace anymore it means avoiding giving someone truth, avoiding true love for one another yeah. uh, that was James's retort to that reply, though, is simply this Prove your faith without works, and I'll prove mine by my works. If we stop for just a second and think about it, how do we prove something that's completely intangible? (coughs) This can be difficult to contextualize in our minds. And so, again, I thought of an illustration. Let's think of explosives for a minute. (laughs) We have 18 acres just a few hundred yards away from us right now. Let's say we took 25 pounds of the chemical compound, commonly known as TNT, and we set it in the middle of the field. Then let's imagine we got to press the red button that sends the electrical pulse, and it all goes boom. Then let's imagine someone comes down to the church a few days later after driving by the field, seeing the giant crater, and they ask, what happened up there? And we say, we blew up 25 pounds of TNT. If they say, prove it what are we supposed to say we know what happened but the only way to prove something that's not visible is to look at the results james tells us clearly that works prove our true salvation if we have been saved each of us knows that something way more powerful than tnt has struck us right but the only way to prove it is by displaying the results of a changed life right
1: James continues almost in a mocking way,
0: good job believing that there is one God. He's looking back to the uh, passage in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 that tells all of the Israelites that God is one, and they should love him uh, with all that they are, and then they should love others second. He reminds us that the devil and his demons know there is one God as well. They recognize his reality. They recognize his power. But that does not save them from eternal separation from God. He finishes by saying, Won't you realize, you foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith that produces only a date in the front of your Bible is dead. Faith that produces only a bullet point in your social media bio is dead. Faith that produces a vain and fraudulent love is dead. And faith without proof or faith without works is dead. It's not very encouraging. Zach, you're putting a lot of emphasis on works and it feels a little bit spiritually unhealthy. Well, let's refresh ourselves and let's turn back to Romans 3 for just a minute and we'll get a little mental refresher before we go to the next point where we'll look at examples of living faith. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. romans chapter 3 verse 24 paul writes being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus and he continues through there if we jump down to verses 27 and 28 paul writes where is boasting then? it is excluded by what law of works Nay, but by the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law Paul continues with the example of Abraham in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Again, just such a beautiful passage. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Paul's point there is that he wasn't justified by works, by the way. But not before God, continuing in verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Paul makes it very clear that Abraham, and therefore each of us as well, is justified by grace through faith. Let's go back to our passage in James chapter 2. We'll read verses 21 through 26. Was Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, seest then how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's pause briefly and remind ourselves a little bit of what justification is, which is our first point under living faith. Justification is probably one of the biggest, most awe-inspiring doctrines in our Bible. In your notes, I put a spot to write the definition of justification. Simply put, justification is a change of position or status.
1: When we receive God's free gift of salvation, our position or status changes totally.
0: We each begin as one that is destined to hell because of our own choices. And then as a result of putting our faith in Christ's finished work, our position is changed to one that is accepted as God's own child. The part that makes it even more mind-blowing is that everything that has to be done in order for us to be justified has already been done. We often illustrate this point by thinking of a courtroom situation. We've committed a crime. We come in to be tried and it's clear that we're guilty. One commentator says it this way, eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness comes in to testify. They look at us and say, that one is guilty. Maybe we even acknowledge our own guilt to the judge and we say, let's just skip all of this and declare me guilty. The judge bangs the gavel and says, this court finds you innocent on all counts. That's justification in a very, very simple picture. Going back to the spiritual application, we're not justified because of something we did. It's because one, with a capital O, has been punished for us. And we can be declared righteous, even though we're not worthy of it. What a wonderful thought. We don't have to do anything to obtain our salvation, other than believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we read this passage in James 2, verses 21 through 26. And if you're following along with me, you notice there's kind of a big problem. Look at verse 21, 24, and 25 of James 2. Verse 21, let me flip back here. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Verse 24, you see then that how by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? I mentioned earlier that we look back at James's background and context, and those things come majorly, majorly into play here. Yeah. That beautiful section that Paul wrote in Romans about how we are justified through faith without deeds seems to completely contradict James here. But in reality, Paul and James are actually in agreement. James is just furthering Paul's teachings. If we look at James's context, we remember that James is writing to what group of people, saved or unsaved? Saved. And he's writing to these that are scattered abroad. In fact, before this passage, I jotted down in your notes that he refers to his audience as brethren six times in chapter 1, verse 2, verse 16, verse 19, and in chapter 2, verses 1, 5, and 14. James also has been writing about what true faith looks like since the end of chapter 1. In verses 26 and 27, he writes of a man that seems to be religious, and he gives us tests that tell us what pure religion actually looks like. In chapter 2, he continues by teaching that those who show favoritism blaspheme the worthy name by the which they are called. We just saw a few minutes ago descriptions of a dead faith in chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, when we noted a false profession, fraudulent pity, and flippant persuasion. So to understand James's context, one commentator says, Everything up to this point is in regards to proofs or indicators of genuine faith rather than how to obtain saving faith. Therefore, this point must continue to further that line of instruction. Paul is writing how one may obtain saving faith. I think, again, an illustration. Uh, illustrations help me to think through things in, in a here and now type of way, and I think it might help us here as well. Think of someone who's standing on the edge of a super, super calm lake. I mean, flat as glass. If they pick up a rock and throw it, someone on the shore might say, wow, you threw that rock a mile. And someone out on a little fishing boat where the the rock splashed very close by might say, that rock made a huge splash. They're observing the same exact thing, but from different points of view and at different moments in the rock's trajectory. But both of them are correct. Paul and James here are doing that very same thing. They're both correcting false doctrines. Paul is correcting those who were dealing with Judaizers that taught that works were required to gain salvation. And James was dealing with Jews who had gone from a works-based salvation to one that gave everything and demanded nothing. Truly, that faith may have actually resulted in even worse conduct than earlier. Because if you're saved and you have no worries (laughs) of eternal damnation, why not live it up? The other thing that is, excuse me, there, I lost my place in my notes, I got excited. There's no contradiction between Paul and James, but rather chronological agreement. Paul teaches us how to be saved, and James teaches us what our lives should look like once we are saved. The other thing that's very important to take into account is the meaning of the word justified within the context of James. We regularly think of justified as declared not guilty of wrongdoing, like the courtroom situation we looked at. But there's another meaning of justify that's really, really important to know. That definition could be understood with these words. Demonstrated, vindicated, corroborated, or proved. Look at these few passages quickly, and then we'll get back to our passage in James again. In Luke 7, verse 29, Jesus gives support to John the Baptist's ministry. And Luke writes that the people heard him, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Did God need to be declared not guilty of wrongdoing? Oh, we seem to have some doubts. Did God need to be declared not guilty of wrongdoing? No, he didn't. Obviously, God doesn't need to be declared not guilty of wrongdoing. So we understand that the people are not testifying to change his position or status, but they're testifying and corroborating the fact that God is righteous because we have seen it. In Romans 3 verse 4, and we'll look at just the second half of it. Paul quotes David, who's writing in Psalm 51 4. Paul writes, As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Again, we realize God doesn't need to be justified in the context of salvation. He, his position is immovable. He is immutable, we say yeah. frequently. But we know that what God says is perfectly able to be said, because He is the ultimate authority and judge. His speech is demonstrated because what he says will happen will. Once we understand that there's no contradiction or controversy in this passage, in James 2, it actually becomes really, really quite simple. James says that Abraham was justified by works, and he cites Abraham's obedience in offering Isaac. Abraham gained his saving faith when he accepted the covenant God offered, but then he was justified by works by having faith that God would provide and follow, and then he followed that faith in obedience by going all the way up to the point of raising the knife above either. Therefore, by works, Abraham's faith was proved. It was vindicated. It was justified. James then notes Rahab's vindicated faith by works in verse 25. I included in your notes a space to jot down that we see her faith in Joshua 2, verse 11, when Rahab says... As soon as we have heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. The works that justify Rahab's faith follow in verse 21. When the Bible tells us that she bound the scarlet line in the window. She knew who God was and then made the decision to have faith in him. But her work of communicating to her family what was coming... As well as hanging that scarlet cord out her window, displayed the legitimacy of her faith. Right. James finishes by concluding just as our body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead also, is also dead. As, as we wind this down to a close tonight, I want us to understand one last very important point. We are told how to be saved in God's word, but the majority of our spiritual lives occur after the moment of salvation. John MacArthur says this, it cannot be stressed too often that no one can be saved by works. But neither can it be stressed too often that faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. We might say that it costs us nothing to become a Christian, but everything to live fully as one. We're told in the book of Revelation what Jesus Christ himself will judge us by. The seven churches receive a letter from the Messiah, and at the beginning of every single one of those letters, there's a little phrase repeated again and again and again. That one little phrase, I know thy works. We see it in Revelation 2, verse 2, verse 19, and then in chapter 3, verses 1, 8, and 15. So what do we do with this message? I certainly don't want any of us to go out of here confused and thinking trying to see if we need to work for our salvation. Obviously not. But it would also be a pity if one left our midst thinking that he or she were saved when in reality, their faith was illegitimate. It's important that each of us work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as we answer the question of whether or not we truly have a saving faith. After a message like this, each of us should do some heavy internal examining examination or else we should be greatly encouraged if we are saved this is one of the most encouraging passages in scripture because a genuinely saved person knows that they're saved not because of hoping or thinking or wishing but because their lives prove that they are saved if you would say you've been saved you'll see the justification of your genuine conversion By your desire to obey, as well as the action of obedience that stems from that desire. If you would say you've been saved, but you have no desire to do good works, I'm not saying that you're not saved. It's not my job to be the judge of that. That's between you and the Lord. People certainly wander at times. However, if you would say you've been saved, but you have no desire to do good works, or you're not actually just obeying the simplicity in God's Word, James tells us that it's a pretty clear indicator that the legitimacy of your faith is highly suspect at the best. (laughs) At the very least, it would be a good reason to have a serious spiritual conversation with one of us on staff or with a deacon. One commentator said this, if you are a genuine Christian, your true faith will lead to good works. And that, again, is where the encouraging piece is. We can also grow in discernment as we interact with the world around (laughs) us that claims the the name of Christ in nearly every, every sphere. It's so, so hard to know who truly is trying to represent Christ in the gospel and who is just using him. Our world is so confused today. But James gives us clear definitions as to what we should look for. May each of us leave no doubt in our own minds or in the minds of others because our genuine faith is proven, displayed, and justified by our works. We have just a minute before I I finish early, which is terrific.